Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby at Mindsight.com. Well, ladies and gents, sorry it's been so long since the last show. I've been extremely busy on another project, a West End musical, bizarrely enough, and I just haven't had the time to give Commodity Watch Radio the attention it so richly deserves. But we are back, and we are back with one of my favourite guests, Paul Van Eden, the founder of Cranberry Capital. Paul, welcome back. Thanks so much for sparing us the time to come on. Uh, when we spoke in early summer, in June, you were short base metal stocks. What's your position there now? Hi, Dominic. Yes, that's correct. I was short base metal stocks, stayed short in July and covered in August in what turned out to be a very timely and profitable trade. Um, at the moment, I'm no longer short the base metals because the rate of monetary inflation allows me to think that base metals could nominally perform okay, but in real terms, I still expect base metals to fall and underperform gold. So I'm not short base metals, but I'm, I'm definitely not long either. So presumably you think there's some kind of um, recession coming if you think uh, the base metals are going down. Do you not think that um, China can keep global growth going? No. No, I don't. I think the United States is going to slide into recession. I think that most of the problems uh, with respect to home mortgages in the United States are still ahead of us. The bulk of the mortgage interest rate resets are still coming. And I think that the fact that U.S. home prices have stopped going up pretty much turned off the spigot in the United States. So I do expect a recession or worse in the United States. Um, you know, depending on which numbers you want to believe, the United States accounts for anywhere between about 30 to 40 percent of global economic activity. And U.S. consumer spending accounts for 70 percent of U.S. economic activity. So if you do the multiplication, the United States accounts for probably anywhere from, you know, 20 to 30 percent, or sorry, U.S. consumer spending accounts from anywhere between about 20 to 30 percent of, of total worldwide global economic activity. If the United States consumer stops spending money, and I mean, I'm not saying stop completely, but if the growth in U.S. consumer spending stops, it has a major impact on worldwide economic activity. And I don't see China being able to offset that. You know, China's economy is only about one-sixth the size of the United States economy, which means that U.S. personal consumption or U.S. consumer spending is multiples of the Chinese GDP. And you don't think the emerging middle classes in the BRIC countries can, uh, can make up the difference? No, that's a laughable proposition. I mean, BRIC stands for Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Um, you know, when you look at what's actually happening in these countries, India's economy is very small. 
on global standards. So is Brazil's. Uh, so is Russia's economy, for that matter. And China, while its economic growth is, is spectacular, when the, while the size of its economy is, you know, rapidly becoming very significant, as I mentioned, it is still only one-sixth one the size of the United States economy. And people talk about the growing middle class in these companies, but, you know, when I look at these things, I see, for example, in China, a lot of infrastructure development. And that's not growing middle class. That's discretionary spending by the centrally planned government. What makes you think that that's developing a middle class at the rate at which it will offset U.S. personal consumption expenditures? Maybe 20 years from now, but not next year. And so I don't buy into that argument at all. Um, you know, and if it doesn't go for China, it doesn't work for Russia, India, or Brazil. So I, I don't see that happening. I think that all of that is discretionary spending. Uh, you know, well, I, I shouldn't put all of that, but I think in China we've got an enormous amount of discretionary spending by governments, and while that can continue, uh, that is not at all the same as a deep economy with a large middle class. Right now, the middle class in those countries is busy developing. It is not yet existent to the same extent as it is in Europe or in North America. It is busy developing. That is very positive impact for the world going forward. But I think that it is overly optimistic to believe that middle-class consumer spending in Brazil, Russia, India, and China is going to offset a decline in consumer spending in the United States and possibly North America if the United States drags Canada and Mexico down with it, which it could. Now, you mentioned uh, that a lot of um, mortgages are coming up for reset in the, in the States, and that's going to have a negative impact on consumer spending. Do you have a view on the Canadian housing market where you live and um, while we're on the subject, the UK housing market, which haven't declined? Yes, I, d I'm, I don't have a very strong opinion on those markets. Um, in Canada, there weren't as many exotic mortgage products as there were in the United States. And so I think the Canadian mortgage market is fundamentally in better shape than the U.S. mortgage market. But if you look at home prices compared to rental income, the Canadian market was more expensive than the U.S. market. And I believe so was the U.K. market. Um, you know, I can, I can probably tell you, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at a chart right now. The most expensive market, if you compare home prices relative to the rental income, is actually Spain with Canada being the second most expensive and the UK being the third most expensive, followed by France and then the United States. And so, realistically, one could say that given home prices relative to rental income in places such as the UK, Canada, Spain, and France, if we were to see interest rates go up, then we should probably see these home prices soften up. But that's a very, very different situation, I believe, than what we're seeing occurring in the United States 
because in the, the problem in the United States wasn't so much just the increase in real estate prices. The problem was the creation of very exotic mortgage products, which allowed people who really couldn't afford to buy the homes that they were buying to buy them. And because these people truly couldn't afford these homes or afford the mortgages, they are getting into trouble after the teaser introductory rates reset to market interest rates. <clears throat> and literally, these people are just giving the houses back to the bank and saying, sorry, we cannot afford to pay you anymore. I don't believe, and this is, this is not a, a research statement, but I don't believe that we saw the UK or the Canadian real estate market um, resort to the same level of mortgage products and enticements as the United States did. And that's, that's the fundamental difference. Yeah, I mean, we don't have the arm, but we have some uh, very loose lending practices here. But um, moving on, uh, you mentioned gold. Uh, I know you're a gold bug. How are you feeling about gold at the moment? I'm very positive about gold. Uh, you know, the, the, fundamentally, the gold price is not dependent on economic activity. The gold price is dependent on monetary inflation rates primarily, and then depending on which currency you're looking at it in, it is a reflection of that currency's exchange rate as well. But the primary driver for the gold price is just pure monetary inflation. And right now we're seeing extraordinarily high inflation rates in the United States, in the UK, in Europe, and, and even in Canada. Um, this high, in, this high inflation rate, I think, is going to cause the gold price to keep going up at a fairly rapid clip. Now, what could derail that is if somehow the central banks were unable to stave off any kind of a recession by creating more money. You know, the mechanism or the method, at least, by which the, the, the reserve banks try to prevent recessions is by printing and creating more money, by stimulating the economy with, with new money. That's what's driving the gold price higher. If the, if the government were unable to create more money, then we'd have a problem. But there are so many tools at their disposal for creating money that I think the probability of them not creating inflation is very, very, very low. Therefore, I think the probability of the gold price not going up is very, very low. Let me, let me put an argument to you. We've had a heck of a run in the gold price since mid-August. The gold price has got ahead of itself. If you look at the seasonal patterns for gold, it tends to pull back in October. The uh, COP position, the COMEX, the traders on the COMEX are at their shortest position that they've been in I think three years I don't think this is a good time to buy gold what do you say to that you might be right in the short term um, you know other than being short some some base metal stocks in the middle of the year because I thought that that market had gone completely insane I usually don't trade with a with less than a six-month time frame anyway I usually put my positions on with a view of a multi-year time frame According to my way of reckoning, 
the gold price has a reasonable probability of doubling between now and, say, 2012, say, five years out. Now, if I'm looking at the gold price at $750 and I think that it's going to go to $1,200 or $1,400, I really don't care what it's going to do next month. Well, that's fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm like you. I'm like you, Paul. I, I think it's going uh, beyond uh, double by 2012. I think we may pull back 30 or 40 dollars before the next move up. But I think the next move up is uh, is not far away. But Dominic, just listen to what you just said. I mean, if you really believe that I'm being too conservative with my own projection, if you think the gold price can exceed 1,400 dollars in five years, why are you spending any energy? trying to figure out if it's going to fall $20 because the reality is no matter how good a chartist you are and how, no matter how good a technical analyst you are, there is nobody that has a 100% success rate in reading the charts. So people, you know, sometimes they're right and sometimes they're wrong. Why would you risk trading in or out of this market at the wrong time if there is this much money to be made just being long and staying long? You're quite right. It's just um, I don't like uh, watching my portfolio go down. <laughs> do you look at your uh, portfolio on a daily basis or do you? I look at it about once a week. And the only reason I'm looking at it is to find out what I got to sell. In other words, I don't look at the value of the portfolio and worry about whether it's up or down 10 or 20 percent. That really is not what I'm concerned about. I look at my portfolio of stocks every every week and say, what in this list? do I need to sell? What is not performing? Where have the fundamentals changed? Uh, that's really what I'm looking for. And all the rest of the time, I'm spending trying to find new companies to invest in. Um, so I'm not very concerned about fluctuations in the portfolio value. Would you say you make a trade every week? No. Gosh, I'd be, I'd be busy if I was making a trade a month. So you're a proper bona fide investor? Yes. I mean, I don't view my share certificates as trading cards. I view them as fractional ownership in a business. And if I like the business and I like the price of the business, I'm happy to be a fractional owner. I might become a larger fractional owner. If I don't like the business anymore, if things aren't working out, then I sell my ownership interest. And if the business price changes, um, it's an opportunity to act. If I really like the business and the price goes down, I buy more of the business. And if I own a business and the price goes up and reaches some kind of a silly price, then I sell my interest in the business. Uh, but for the rest, I really don't care about the fluctuations of the business. So the way I view the gold market is that if you and I are right about what the price of gold is going to do, in other words, it's going to go up significantly, look for good businesses in the gold sector that you'd like owning for the next five years. And let the manager of the business worry about the day-to-day -day hassles of running the business. And you can go to the beach and relax and go out with your girlfriend. And in five years, you come back. And if you were right, hopefully you made a ton of money. Let me ask you a question. In the last six weeks, um, in this move we've seen in gold, we've seen a big move in gold. We've seen a big move in the gold majors but we haven't seen that greater move in the junior 
gold miners and even less so in the explorers. Can you offer an that explanation for that? Yes, because what happened in August is that the risk profile of the market has, been, has changed. In other words, the people uh, are more risk-averse today than they were three months ago. And that's why you'll find that the commodity would have moved first, the bigger companies would have followed suit, and as you go down the quality profile, in other words, you go up the risk profile, you see less of a, of a movement because I think a lot of people who were overextended, over-leveraged, and over-invested in high-risk speculations that they shouldn't have owned in the first place got their heads handed to them and they're a little gun-shy right now. And I wouldn't be surprised if this situation continued for a while longer. But ultimately, if the price of gold keeps moving up, greed will overcome fear once again, and you'll find that the tail end, which is the most speculative junior exploration stocks, will again be wagging the widest mm -hmm. or having the most volatility. So it's just a matter of playing that you know, again, because I'm not a trader, I don't even try to arbitrage that. Yeah. I'm, I stick to the business. And if I own a junior exploration company and I really like the business and I really like what they're doing and I think they're going to be in business five years from now, it really doesn't bother me if the senior producers outperform it in the short term. And how often do you talk to the uh, management of the companies which you own shares in? Um. It varies from company to company. Some of these guys I talk to uh, on a bi-weekly basis or sometimes on a, on a weekly basis, and some of these guys I don't talk to for, for several months. It, it depends on what the level of activity is and what the company is and what my level of interest is in the company. So there isn't one shoe for everybody. Mm -hmm. Now, perhaps I shouldn't be asking you this question given what you've already said, but um, looking at the charts... I see a lot of similarities between the pattern in the gold and silver prices in the lead up to 2005, uh, August 2005, when they kind of began their one of their big moves up, um, to the patterns in August 2007. And I think we're about a month or so into a big move up in gold and silver. Would you uh, agree with that analysis? Well, didn't you just tell me a little earlier that you thought this was going to be a bad month and we're looking at a 20 or $30 drop in the gold price? I did. I, I, see, a, a, I see us going back to about 690 before the next move up. I may be completely right. wrong about that. But, I mean, even when gold made its big move from a kind of uh, up to $720, $730, which ended in May, there were still kind of $40 corrections on the way. Okay, well, let's assume that you're right on both counts. Let's assume that we're going to see a short-term pullback in the price of gold, and then we're going to see a major rally in the price of gold. The way that I would look at this is any pullback, any significant pullback is an opportunity to look for bargains in the business. And if, you know, if you're buying physical gold, it's an opportunity to, to buy some more, and if you're looking for companies, hopefully some of the prices will come down. Because I'm a long-term invest, long investor and essentially a long-side long investor, I would be looking for buying opportunities if we, see a, if we see a pullback. With respect to a similarity to 2005, when the price of gold and commodities ran from around August 2005 to May 2006, 
my opinion at the time was that the, that the rally was not fundamentally driven. And around May 2006, I liquidated about 50% of my portfolio and moved half to cash. Prior to that, I was about 90% invested. And, you know, from May 2006, probably right up until now, most of these stocks have gone sideways. And so being in a, in a large cash position was, was very beneficial. Um, it has allowed me to buy some things in, in, in the last few months that otherwise I may not have had the ability to do. So I would be looking at a major rise in metal prices in the next 12 to 18 months or six months, depending on what your charts are telling you. And if these prices rise too rapidly, I'd be taking some money off the table again. Um, but, you know, I'm not a chartist, so I don't see what it is that you see. I mean, you know, but do you see them going to $1,000 in six months? Gold $1,000? Um, I think we'll see, we could well see 800 before the end of the year. Um, I don't think that's uh, too distant a, uh, a probability. And I think we could, if we get a repeat of the... Um, the 2005 2006 pattern we could see a thousand dollars by the spring but i think it might have got beyond itself if it does do that by the spring do you have a kind of upside target price or does that depend on the uh, monetary expansion at the time it depends entirely on the rate of monetary expansion given the current rate of monetary expansion i would expect the price of gold to approximately double in approximately the next five years. Uh, but that depends on numerous variables um, that could impact monetary expansion. And so it's really very difficult to put a firm price and a time frame on anything. Um, could we see something more than that? Absolutely. We could see the gold price performing better than that. But if I saw the gold price performing substantially better then I would like to see that coincide with very high rates of monetary expansion. What sometimes occurs is that the gold price will move in anticipation of, say, an increase in monetary expansion. And if the monetary expansion doesn't follow, then the gold price is set for a correction. And, um, you know, I think there are a lot of expectations amongst people in the gold market, that the price of gold is going to perform as it did in the 1970s, going from $35 an ounce to $850 an ounce. I just don't see that happening. And I guess if I do see that happening, I'm going to be on the sell side. <laughs> um, I know you're more of a gold bull than you are a silver bull. And um, I suppose you're your instincts have been confirmed because the silver price has uh, been dramatically underperforming the gold price. Now, one of the things we're often told is that silver leads gold in a bull market, but that hasn't been happening. Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't believe the silver market really leads the gold market. Um, I think silver is an industrial metal and gold is a monetary metal. And I don't think that there's any real good argument to be made that the gold-silver ratio has to be something very specific. Um, I think that over time the gold-silver ratio is actually going to change. And um, I think if we do go into 
a period of economic slowdown, I would fully expect the silver price to underperform relative to the gold price. But because the silver market is very small, there is also the possibility that at some point, uh, you know, these silver bugs, instead of just talking about silver, is actually going to buy some, and they could drive the silver price up very rapidly. So I do also expect the silver price to be more volatile than the gold price and having spikes that would exceed the gold price in performance. Mm-hmm. Do you own any um, uh, dedicated silver companies? No, not at the moment, no. And um, what about natural gas? Do you have any natural gas positions? No, but I think natural gas is a good space to be looking at right now. But no, I don't own any specific natural gas stocks at the moment. Oil? I, uh, no, I don't own any oil stocks. So you're almost entirely invested in gold, in junior gold mining companies? Yes. And of those, they're all exploration, am I right in saying? Mostly exploration, yes. That's a very definite niche that you've put yourself in. Um, have you got any plans to come to the UK soon? Um, you know, I might be in the UK next month, but I'm not 100% sure about that yet. What would that, would that be for Mines and Money? No, not for Mines and Money. Um, I'm actually going to Munich. Uh, on the 2nd and 3rd, there's an investment conference in Munich, and I'm going to be speaking there. And then on the 13th of November, of November there's a conference in Stockholm, and I'll be speaking there as well. And, uh, you know, it crossed my mind to stop by London in the in the middle, but I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to make it to London yet. I will, however, be in Munich and Stockholm. All right. Well, it'll be great to see you here. I have to say, in, um, on November the 6th, which fits into your diary quite nicely, there's a big silver conference going on in London, the Silver Summit. But uh, you have to say silver's going to the moon if you want to speak at that. Well, not only that, I tend to stay away from the silver conferences just in case they tar and feather me. <laughs> Um, I, I always say, if you think the gold bulls are nutters, wait till you meet the silver bulls. Uh, oh, I've met them. <laughs> I'm sure you have. <laughs> Listen, Paul, thank you so much for coming on the show. Do come on again soon. As we close, do you want to give out your website address and mention um, what you do so that uh, if our listeners want to buy your newsletter that they can? Yes, certainly. The website address is www paulvaneden.com and if you don't remember that, it's you can also find it by pve.net. And remember, not .com, but .net, pve.net. Um, essentially, I'm, a, I'm an investor in, that specializes in mineral exploration companies, and I write a weekly email-based newsletter that discusses the companies that I buy, the reasons I like them, and I also advise my subscribers when I sell them and the reasons why I sold them. Have you, are you doing a lot of buying at the moment, or are you just uh, you're fully invested? I'm not fully invested. I'm actually looking for things to buy, but it really is difficult to find good good deals right now. So um, I'm in the buying mode, but I wouldn't say that I'm overly active. I'm fairly picky about the stuff that I buy. Well, good stuff. If you want to invest money in a West End musical, let me know. <laughs> I know nothing about Western musicals, unfortunately. All right, well, I'll send you a brochure. Paul, thanks very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show.
You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Well, Michael Hampton is with me now and uh, people who've been listening to the show over the past year or so, if you go back and listen to Michael's calls, you'll see that they've been uncannily accurate. I've just been given a bit of a ticking off by Paul Van Eden for having time horizons that are too much in the short term. Mike, welcome back to the show. Hey, Dominic. Let's talk about the short term. Where, where do you see gold going in the short term? Um, <laughs> let's say up a little bit and then maybe down a little bit. Um, and then maybe having a better buying opportunity in late October, early November than we have right now. Um, I mean, let's, let's talk about where we are at the moment, actually. Um, the gold price grows sharply. Um, as we all know, from 650 to seven, almost 750. That's a hundred dollar move. We've seen pretty quickly from, um, what, sometime in August to here we are, um, at the end of the first week of October. And, uh, I think seasonal forces might actually push the price of gold down from here. So, I could see it going a little bit higher in the next few days, and then we might see these seasonal factors come into play. And I actually think we'll see gold lower in uh, a month than it is now. Very interesting. How much lower? Maybe 700, 720 is the sort of target I'm talking about. Um, now, I don't really know. I don't have a road map, and even if I did, I wouldn't believe it. But what I tend to use for a sort of quasi-road map is a seasonal indicators which show, show gold over quite a few years now. As it happens, my my own birthday is uh, well today. Oh, uh, happy birthday! Here in, <laughs> <here> in <laughs> Hong Kong, it's now the seventh of October, and I looked at I don't know twenty years of data, and I found out that there's a tendency for gold to peak on the seventh of October, and um, it's pretty easy for me to remember that date. So. Um, I have a tendency to want to sell gold around this day, looking to buy it back around Christmas time. So if this seasonal, you know, factor holds up this year, um, then you know we could see gold lower after the seasonal dip. Now I do think there's a little bit of upward momentum which started last week, um, which could carry into next week or so, pushing the gold a bit higher, maybe retesting the recent highs. Um, but after that's out of the way and after that's done, I think we'll see some seasonal factors pull it down. So I tend to think normally the best time to buy gold is middle of the summer, late August, and around Christmas time. This, this drop might not be as long as the usual one from uh, early October into Christmas. This might be a, li- a little shorter in my opinion, but we may see a bounce in the dollar and a drop in gold, which would last for a few weeks, maybe three to six weeks. Very interesting. I mean, I kind of agree. I, I think gold's going back to the 50 or the 55-day moving average, which is uh, just below 700. The traders report is actually looking quite bearish right Unbelievably now. Unbelievably bearish. The cot traders are at the shortest position they've been in, in three years. Yeah, the commercial traders actually tend to be right a lot of the time. And when their positions reach extremes and they're very short gold, you're often getting 
peaks in gold, and that's the sort of situation we're seeing right now. And as you say, I think it's the shortest they've been, well, in many, many years, maybe. Even though you see a better、uh, buying opportunity in a month or so, you still maintain a core position in gold at all times, don't you? Yeah, I mean that's a, obviously that's quite a good point. I mean, I I'm raising cash right now, and、uh, I'm looking to get my cash position up to the highest level of the year over the next few days.、Um, but I'll still remain dramatically long gold with.、Uh, My cash level might reach ten percent, maybe twenty percent, maybe even twenty-five percent, but I'm not going a hundred percent cash. So let's talk about uh, short-term uh, trading horizons and long-term trading horizons. As I say,、uh, Paul gave me a bit of a taking off.、Uh, pretty much everyone's agreed that、uh, the dollar's going a lot lower over the next five years and gold's going a lot higher. Um, and、uh, I mean, he advocated just、uh, going long and going to the beach and coming back in five years' time, which is a pretty、uh, unstressful way of, of of trading. But you 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 look at the shorter term, don't you? Well, yeah. I mean, the problem with that is that how much pain can you take? Because you know, if you do believe, as I do and Paul does, that gold's going to be a lot higher in three to five years' time, I suppose you should. Try and think that way, but the problem is if if you're if you're say 100% long gold, and you get a correction along the way, the human tendency would be to panic somewhere during that correction. I'm talking about a severe correction, and then maybe get thrown out right at the bottom. And、um, you know, I, so I think it's easy to take up your cash position to dramatic levels when when you when you. Have a seasonal reason and a commitment, a trader's reason, and other reasons. So it's much easier going through those stressful times with cash in the bank than it is fully invested.、Mm-hmm. And you know, last time, I mean, there was a really dramatic drop in gold in the middle of gold's big move, and we're at the sort of point where,、uh, you know, if we're going to repeat the pattern we saw last time. A drop to maybe five fifty or something like that, like say back below six hundred, you know, wouldn't be out of the question,、um, and we would still remain in a bull market. But how many of us here could take that kind of pain, seeing the gold price come all the way back to five fifty or six hundred, and gold shares maybe retracing thirty, forty percent of their recent, ra-、uh, you know, the, their highs,、um, and and remain happily on the beach? <laughs> I mean, I would just find it really difficult. I would much rather be sitting with a lot of cash. Yeah, don't don't take the computer with you is the answer. Well, yeah,、um, exactly. Don't take the computer with you. But、um, you know, it's it is quite satisfying having some cash. That, you know, then you can invest when those big drops come. Uh, so I think probably Paul would would agree with this as well. I mean, the question is, what's the size of your core position that you want to hold right through thick and thin? And、uh, my own my own is pretty big, but I just want to have a lot of cash when we see big writing on the wall in the way of a seasonal time like this and a commitment of traders' reports as we've been seeing the last few weeks. Let's、um, let's change the subject.、Uh, let's talk about well something that's been concerning me. I、uh, I wonder if you have any thoughts on it. The outperformance of gold on silver. Yeah, well, 
there are a lot of obviously there are a lot of bulls uh, on silver around because the, you know the common thinking is that when we do see an important bull run such as we were in uh, possibly now and going to be in the future, um, there's a tendency for people to expect silver to outperform gold. Now we've been seeing the reverse of that. Um, and by the way, I think you follow this perhaps just now better than I do, which is how does the silver commodity traders report look at the moment? Is it still bullish? It, no, it's it's bearish, but it's not as, or I would say it's neutral. Uh, it's yep. not as uh, as uh, extreme as the gold uh, situation is, but it's not as bullish as it was uh, three or four weeks ago. Three or four weeks ago, it was uber bullish. The silver cot report. Yes, yes, uh, it was, and I actually bought a little bit. Uh, I've bought a few silver shares, but uh, so there are a few attractive silver shares around at the moment, and I'm watching some. Endeavor Silver comes to mind. Um, I haven't actually bought it yet, but it's very close to has been very close to my targets, um, and one or two others. I mean, I, I I happen to buy something called Silver Crest, and um, Great Panther is another one I bought recently. Um, I've missed a few others, but uh, those are two that I had been on my mm. buying list. Um, but if we do get this pullback, I'm expecting I'll probably look to be buying three or four or five silver shares on that pullback. Um, yeah, but so the question is, why are we getting an outperformance on gold versus silver? Well, um, you know, this is only a certain junction in this move, so um, I think. You know, it just happens at this particular junction we've seen a stronger gold price. I mean, gold is certainly better known around the world as a place to put your money when you're fleeing the dollar than silver is. Uh, silver tends to be an obsession of, uh, if I can put it this way, of Americans, North Americans, not so much Europeans and to a much lesser degree Asians who, uh, and uh, people in the Middle East and the Gulf. Uh, you know, I think globally, gold is the preferred marker rather than silver, and it's only going to be uh, silver is only going to be moving. I think when you get a big bull market in North America. Let's uh, let's move on. Uh, let's just address one other observation that I've made about the uh, recent market action, which is that the seniors have way outperformed the juniors, uh, and the explorers. I mean, yes. I heard one recognised uh, trader, John Wollstonecroft, uh, seems to think the explorers are in a virtual bear market. Yeah, I mean, that is, actually is is an important point. And, uh, I mean, I have to say it's affected my own performance where uh, we had a pretty vicious drop in uh, in some of the Explorers, junior stocks, uh, including the Explorers, uh, over the summer. I think there was a two-week period where a lot of these stocks just really plummeted. And some of them haven't even recovered their, uh, you know, their highs prior to that drop. Um, they're still below that. I mean, you know, at Kimber's Resources, an example, which had a very vicious sell-off from what over three dollars, sorry, over two two dollars down to seventy cents or something, and uh, that stock's hovering about a dollar right now. I think so. You know, it's lost half of its value, and uh, you know that's one of many stocks that have seen a pretty severe pullback. Now, why is that? Well, basically, uh, you know, explorers. Uh, I think Doug Casey is the one who refers to them as burning matches. 
um, where the, you know they're constantly using up their cash and needing to come back into the market. So they need a very receptive market to allow them to fund themselves for their uh, exploration activities. And um, the market has to be right for long enough that they can get funded up and uh, get some excitement going on the projects they're looking at. And we really haven't reached that stage yet. Uh, we haven't regained that stage yet since the sell-off over the summer. Okay, and uh, let's move away from the uh, precious metals now. Let's um, let's talk about your favourite subject, UK property. Where are we on on your roadmap to disaster? Well, I think the market's moving pretty much as I expected uh, six months ago, um, where uh, we saw a peak. In in my opinion, we saw an important peak over the summer. And we're now seeing a pretty dramatic drop in uh, in property has begun. Um, let me talk about the builders because that's the most transparent part. Oh, the builders' charts look terrible, don't they? Oh, yeah, they do. I mean, basically, um, as you know, we saw a huge rally in the builders starting in, uh, I think, about almost exactly two years ago in... Uh, I think it was late October, actually, rather than early October, but it was about just about two years ago. Um, we saw a huge rally from uh, in the builders, and uh, my indicator, the builders' bellwether index, took off from a low of about 105 and shot up all the way to, gosh, what was it? I think it got as high as 140, and this is the one adjusted for the FTSE. So that was a dramatic move. Well, what's happened is this retraced that entire gain. I mean, the important message here is that they've dropped all the way back to slightly below the lows of 2005. So if they stay here, that's suggesting to me that UK property is going to retrace all of those gains from, you know, late from the pause in 2005 and through into 2006. All those gains are going to be retraced, in my opinion, if, uh, if the builders stay down here. Um, my, my own view is that they're actually going to go lower and then they're going to drag UK property lower still. But, uh, I mean, I think it'll take a little while for the physical market to react. But, you know, within 6 to 12 months, I think we should see most of that gain retraced in property. I think in the in the physical market, just uh, judging where I am in southwest London, definitely properties aren't shifting as quickly. Uh, people's uh, are asking too much money. Uh, there's a bit more doubt in the market than there was a year or so ago, and uh, a lot more people are, you know, talking about where the house prices are going to yeah, go well, the up. Sentiment, there's a lot more doubt there. From what I sentiment hear, has changed. Yeah. Yes, sentiment has changed. Now, one important indicator that we we need to see is uh, actually relates to the builders themselves, which is, I think if this market is going to retrace those gains over the next six months, what we need to see fairly soon, I think we'll see it before the end of the year and maybe within a few weeks, um, competitive discounting by new builders, uh, by the builders. In other words, the new projects that they have to sell and they're finding increasingly difficult to get rid of, um, so far, they've mostly been offering bigger and better incentives. Um, I've been hearing some incredible stories about the sort of incentives they're coming up with. Um, and I think they've kind of almost come to the end of those, because the last one I was hearing about was they were actually cutting down on the new, sorry, down payments they were asking people to make. So they're offering people carpets and curtains and 
you know, payments of this and that tax or this and that legal fee. Um, but something new they're doing now is they're actually saying, well, look, instead of a, you know, 30% down payment by the time the property is completed, you only need to make a 5 down percent down payment now and a 5% down payment later and, you know, then pay for the rest. Well, what they're really doing is they're trying to get, you know, sort of subprime buyers um, are the only buyers mm -hmm. they can get now. And that's a very dangerous game to play um, because a lot of those deals are going to fall through. And that means, you know, with the price pr places they're selling now to these low-quality buyers, they're going to wind up getting them back and having to sell them again. Um, so... I think it's kind of the last gasp of incentives and other, you know, ways of disguising the price drop. They're going to have to make real cuts. And when they start advertising cuts, it's going to become a competitive situation where Barrett will be competing with Persimon, competing with the other builders to come up with the biggest drops. And you'll begin to see the things you're seeing in the U.S. where, uh, you know, some pretty dramatic uh Price cuts are being advertised by the builders, and mm -hmm. that will really undermine the physical secondary market. So I think that kind of competitive price cut thing is only weeks away. Maybe maybe we'll see it, you know, on a weekend before the end of October or sometime in the UK. Mike, thanks very much. Great to have you on again, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Indeed, it's great to great to see that uh, you're back after uh, after what's been a, a bit of a pause. Uh, I think it might be interesting if you can tell people in a minute or two um, what you're doing in the way of uh, helping out uh, new musicals in the <laughs> London scene. Did you did you see did you see some of the videos up on the website? You know what I, I I haven't seen the video yet, but I have listened a couple of times to the sound excerpts from the music, and it's it's great stuff. I was listening to it just the other day, and I encourage people to do that. Okay, well, kissesonapostcard.com. There you go, ladies and gents, if you want to find out more about that. Absolutely, and have a look at uh, Green Energy Investors, and of course it's a uh, better known name, Global Edge Investors, which is where you can comment on the uh, various comments in this interview. Good stuff. All right, Mike, talk to you soon. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.